Yes, America has opportunities, but the way the structures and the systems are set up, it's it's prioritizing right a communities um, more than others. Right, marginalized mm-hmm. communities are still struggling. I think the system isn't set up in a way that could benefit everyone as as equally. If you have been even in the near proximity to a television, computer or phone in the last couple of months, you have no doubt gotten wind of our president's most recent tirade against the other. In a series of tweets, President Trump called out four freshman congresswomen, all of whom are women of color, by the way. Rashida Tlaib, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, and Ilhan Omar, telling them to go back to the places they came from. To be clear, all four of these women are American. Three of the four of these women were born in the United States, while the fourth, Ilhan Omar, is a naturalized citizen born in Somalia. In the following days, Trump has doubled down on his comments, saying that Representative Omar is lucky to be where she is. To be very clear, the president's remarks are racist and they are inexcusable. Today, we will address some of these issues and others with our guest, Rueda Abdulaziz. She is a NYC-based reporter at Huffington Post, where she focuses on Islamophobia and social justice issues within the Muslim community. Welcome, Rueda. So good to have you here. Thank you for having me. So, Rueda, we'll start with your childhood. Okay. Where did you grow up? I actually split half of my time in the U.S. and half abroad. Okay. Um, my parents are natively Egyptian. They're Egyptian immigrants who came to the U.S. Um, in Jersey, specifically in the 90s, uh, where I was born. And so I was born and raised in New Jersey, and I spent part of my formative years growing up in Alexandria, Egypt. So I lived there for some time. I went to school there. I was educated there. And then most immigrant parents, I think, ascends of homesickness comes in a little bit as to why we left the U.S. and I think as to why they wanted to come back. Um, And so then we moved back to the U.S. too long after, and I've been here since. It's interesting because one of my previous guests, Eamon Ismail, I don't know if you know him. Yes, Eamon and I, fun fact, actually went to school together. Oh, interesting. We both are Rutgers University graduates. Oh, interesting. um, And he married one of my good friends. So, yes, we run in very tight circles. (laughs) Yeah, because his parents are from Egypt as well, and he he used to live in New Jersey. I don't know if he lives there now. But it's interesting. Is there a big Egyptian diaspora in New Jersey? Yes, there's a big Egyptian diaspora and there's a large Muslim community, generally speaking, um, in New Jersey that components of the Middle East, North Africa, Southeast Asian, Black Muslims, etc. And I think it's one of my favorite parts about Jersey, despite the fact that it gets a very bad rep for the most part, <laughs> mostly coming from New Yorkers. But it was it was a great place growing up because I it had this vast immigrant community, had this vast Muslim community, had this vast diversity that I think was intentional by my parents. And when I went to school, I don't think I felt 
otherized. You know, mm-hmm. of course, there's always going to be the sense of being the minority, but I wasn't the only one, right? There were other Arab kids, Muslim kids, etc. And um, which makes sense because New York, which is, you know, right across the river, has um, one of the largest Muslim communities in the States, followed by Dearborn, Michigan. So the three areas, Jersey, New York, and um, and Michigan, having the most densely populations of, of Muslims, I think, is really important and I think is a blessing to have in the U.S. You know, there are many Muslims who don't grow up in a Muslim-majority community, and that impacts them. And especially post-9-11, I believe. So how did you end up in journalism? Um, I've always had not just a knack for writing. I think when you ask most reporters why they went into journalism, oftentimes they tell you how much they loved writing. And I think that's true to a certain extent. But if you ask my parents, I talked a lot as a kid. <laughs> they could not get me to shut up because I was consistently and always asking questions. I was a very curious child. And I loved just talking to people and having conversations and, and learning stories. And I think that is what's Sparked my um, like journalism curiosity, and so I studied it in, in university. I have a, a degree um, in journalism, and I've been working in the field ever since. And so, Rueda, what are some of the pressures of being a Muslim journalist in this field, especially now after 2016 elections, and even like prior to that? Yeah, I think being a journalist of color is is pre- is hard and has always been hard, and I mm. think it has been even more challenging lately. And I think one of the reasons when you look at the structure of media and journalism, it's a field that's still predominantly white Mm -hmm. and then it's predominantly male. And so when you have that structure for so long, that's going to shape the lens of as to how news is presented. Mm -hmm. So it's beyond just your physical existence of being a person of color, in my case, being a Muslim and being a woman and being a visible Muslim, someone who wears hijab. So, yes, that has its complexities and dynamics physically in a newsroom. But then when you want to challenge as to how we present news, and I think this is what we're seeing a lot more Mm -hmm. lately, um, especially having Trump as president and and his administration and how we're covering issues like race and class and religion Mm -hmm. has been challenged. And I think we're now coming to a a place where we're realizing the old ways don't work anymore. You know, uh, especially when Trump tweets out the tweet that he did against the four women that you mentioned in your Mm -hmm. intro. People were having a hard time calling it racist, right? We're having a hard time using headlines that are saying this is xenophobic, this is Islamophobic, this is racist. And I think that has damaging effects when we don't call it out. Hmm. And so you're seeing different media organizations trying to cover the same exact tweet and you have insanely different headlines, insanely Mm. different perspectives of coverage. And I think that comes from, again, that structure that's predominantly male, predominantly Mm. white, and you have more young journalists of color who are saying, this needs to change. But has digital media changed that? And you have platforms like you have online blogs and video blogs and all. So I'm assuming young journalists like yourself are using those platforms as well to amplify Uh, marginalized voices and talk about these issues more extensively. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Twitter and Instagram have had a huge impact. Look, people are not consuming news the way they did. It was you picked up a newspaper, you took it home, you read the first few pages and you took the coupons from the end, right? (laughs) At least in my immigrant family. But now we we have also this new idea of what they call like call out culture or cancel Mm -hmm. culture, right? So looking at headlines in a more critical way, you have direct access to journalists. People are adding a journalist's name, 
the organization saying the way you're covering this is problematic, right? Mm -hmm. There was a New York Times headline not too long ago that someone had tweeted a photo of what the next day's headline was going to be. It was Trump's tweet, unity versus racism. Yeah, I think something along those that. lines. Yes. And so beforehand, people would not be able to tell what the Times headline the next day was going to be. And that opened a huge conversation before it even hit prints, before it went anywhere. And people were critical of it. And I think having that that call-out culture has really given a voice to young journalists of color, it's given a voice to marginalized communities to say, you don't speak for us, and when you do in a way that's inaccurate and damaging, we're here to say no. Mm-hmm. And I think that has been fascinating to watch, and I think that's still changing. It's going to change. You know, the Internet is still considered quite young in, mm-hmm. in the years of journalism, and I think we're only going to see that just become more and more intensified. Not that that doesn't have negative implications as well, right? Cancel culture doesn't always work so fairly. That's what I was going to ask you. How does it negatively impact news sometimes? Because we see that there is, like, if there's one tweet— Everybody just blindly follows it. And it depends on where on political spectrum you are you are at, right? So, like, when I look at my Twitter feed, I see a lot of, like, left-leaning, progressive people. Like, I see a lot of tweets from them. And I think that it is also probably because of how... Twitter does its algorithm. Mm -hmm. It just identifies people, what their leanings are, and just, you know, then concentrate or bombard their feed with that. Yeah, I think as much as the internet is wide and diverse, there are still bubbles, right? And I think if you use it strategically and intentionally, you can expose yourself. But it's very easy to follow the same people to get the same types of coverage. And I think another problem with the internet is just how quickly mass disinformation spreads, Mm -hmm. right? You have, we've seen it with conspiracy theories. We've seen it with people tweeting just, um, quote, fake news, right? And and how quickly and how viral that spreads. Um, I think about the shooting in New Zealand that happened earlier this year and how the mass shooter live streamed the massacre, right? And the El Paso shooter wanted had the intention to do the same. Or sorry, the shooter of a mosque in Norway, um, which, you know, thankfully he was apprehended. And so the internet can also be a dangerous place because when we're looking at issues of white supremacy, um, I think one of the reasons why it's become so interconnected is because you have websites like 8chan and 4chan, right? You have the dark web, you have parts of Twitter and Facebook where people are connecting and organizing for all the wrong reasons. And so it's definitely a double-edged sword and it depends on who is the user, what's the agenda happening at play. And it goes beyond just news. It, It goes and it has implications on the ground. And that's what Charlottesville was about, right? Not too long ago, all these folks came out, came out these white supremacists and neo-Nazis and people who sympathize with them to show we're not just an internet bubble, we're real human beings and these are our beliefs. And so um, it's been a dangerous awakening. It's not to say that this hasn't been a problem in the past. This is not a post-2016 problem, but it's something that the internet did give life to. Rueda, you focus a lot on Islamophobia, and I want to talk a little bit about that. So Islamophobia has been hallmark of President Trump's administration, we've seen that, but it existed even before he came on the political stage. Can you talk a little bit about the advent of the term itself 
Yeah, I think that's excellent that you brought it up. This is something that predates President Trump, right? And this is something that even predates 9-11. Mm-hmm. And people are, are now saying, and studies are coming, are saying anti-Muslim rhetoric today is worse than 9-11. And we all know mm-hmm. after September 11th, the backlash against Muslims was intense. It happened on the ground. We had the rise of physical attacks and assaults. And it happened on an institutional level. Right here in New York, we had mass surveillance in our mosques. Um, and the NYPD was uh, mass surveilling students at local universities universities, which just recently we found out produced zero leads, right? Mm-hmm. And so other uh, laws like the Patriot Act, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, we are still living the consequences of that. And yes, that's been amplified because now you have an administration that isn't trying to hide or couch or put fancy language or mask it under national security laws, right? It's it's quite blatant. Um, and the fact that I really like that you mentioned the the controversy of the word Islamophobia, right? Mm-hmm. Because many people don't like or agree with Islamophobia and, or the term Islamophobia. And I'd like to get into that because it's something that I see quite often in my mm-hmm. line of work. People, when they hear Islamophobia or critics of Islamophobia say, well, Islam is a faith. And we want to critique religion like we critique any other religion, right? We don't have Christian phobia or Judophobia right, or Hindu phobia. And so we don't like this particular term. And, and my response to that, it has nothing to do with the faith. Hmm. If folks want to criticize Islam as a religion, then go ahead. Islam is up for debate as to any other faith. People can argue religion, whether you want to believe in it or not, that's completely fine. But when we are targeting a group of people, mass murdering them, surveilling them, attacking them, making workplace discrimination, anti-school bullying, et cetera, et cetera, because they happen to pray differently, this is the Islamophobia that we're talking about. When we can come out and say we want to ban people from several Muslim-majority countries because they put their foreheads on their ground mm. as their form of worship. This is problematic. And I think we as a country are still struggling with this concept that Muslims can be victims, right? That Muslims yeah, are not perpetrators true. of violence. And so I think the disagreement here is call it what you want to call it, but we need to face the root problem, which is inherent discrimination, xenophobia, and racist policies and structures that are essentially vilifying a couple billion people, right? The fastest growing religion in the world. And I think we're not there yet, unfortunately. And I think what people don't realize it, and I have said this time and again, it's 1.2 or maybe even more billion people. It's not a monolith group. It is a group with different cultures, different identities, different practices. And I think this just notion of lumping everybody together, it makes it, the the, the notion is more palatable to calling all Muslims, say, terrorists. Yes. Because I was at this wedding, um, a family wedding in Toronto recently. And it was like in my husband's family and um, his cousin got married to a Uyghur Muslim. And it was the most beautiful wedding I had attended. But their culture is so different from our culture, which is Pakistani culture. And I could see that during the wedding. And that's when, I mean, I've said this so many times, but it just makes it so visible for you to see how diverse Muslims are in terms of even what they practice and how they practice their culture. So it's an extremely important point to understand all Muslims are not the same. Right, especially in the U.S. When you look at the statistics that break down the American Muslim community, there is no majority race 
right? Mm-hmm. We have this idea that being Muslim is synonymous with being either Southeast Asian, Pakistani, Hindu, mm-hmm. or um, or Indian, excuse me, or being Arab, yeah. right? And that's not the case, right? You have one-third of the American Muslim population is black, right? Native black Muslims. The fastest-growing Muslim community in the U.S. are Latino Muslims. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of, of Muslims not being a monolith, I think, stems from the problem of media and TV and movies where they are still equating Muslims means you're coming from the desert, you're wearing, it's like Aladdin, right? And like the criticism of Aladdin, we're just like, part of it is kind of Bollywood influence, but part of it is kind of Arab influence, but they don't really know which ethnic to pick, so they're just going to combine them both and call it Muslim. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. And also, I think people tend to forget that we're only 1% of the U.S. populations. Muslims don't even make a million people here in the U.S., but there's this daunting fear that Muslims are going to take over the world, um, and it's going to be problematic, right? We hear this term Sharia is going to take over, or this idea that, you know, President Obama is a Muslim and like so what? So like, what? So what? So that right? my, So that's another thing that really bothers me because even when you see this, and I think media to some extent is responsible for this as well. You see soft bigotry by Hollywood. I believe it's time to call out Hollywood on how they portray Muslims. Muslims are either terrorists in different movies or they are somehow um, supporting American troops. A Muslim cannot be just this ordinary person going about their lives, doing stuff that other people do. Yeah, we don't have the basic humanization that other people have. And I think because we're still battering these really cliche, really stereotypical, just Orientalist ideas that Muslim women are still oppressed, right? And they all look a certain way. And that Muslim men are are these bearded, brown, violent people. And most of us just are trying to go to school, trying to make it home for dinner. We're just trying to live our daily lives. Many Muslims are not even politically active, right? They're not trying to change the I world. I wish they were, though. And we, things have changed. Things have changed. Ha- and I think this changed, is yes. one of, someone was telling me the other day, he was like, there's like this really dark and twisted silver lining to the Trump administration that has really woken the Muslim community. Mm-hmm. There was a report that came by, came out by Engage not too long ago that's saying more Muslims are voting and politically active and running for office now than they've ever been in the history Mm -hmm. in the U.S. And that's been amazing. I think we saw in the 2017 and 2018 primaries and midterms, they call it the Muslim blue wave, right? Because you had nearly 100 Muslims across the country running for school offices, local offices. You have the two women in Congress who said enough is enough. And and I think that's amazing. And it's a long time coming. So let's talk a little bit about the role of money in politics. We've seen that and there's a lot of debate around that as well. We often talk about it in terms of, you know, undisclosed direct donations um, to candidates by corporations and, you know, other individuals. A different network of funding that CARE recently reported in their report, which was called Hijacked by Hate, it tracks the flow of funding from mainstream charitable organizations to anti-Muslim hate groups, both small and large. In some cases, people may not even know this, but there is money going to these hate groups and people who are giving money to those charities don't even know that their money is going to anti-Muslim hate groups. And there was one estimate that between 2014 and 2016, there was almost like this network had upwards of 1.1 
billion. Can you talk a little bit about this report? Yeah, this report was documenting how different charitable organizations and, and Fidelity being one of them, and I think the most common one that people can identify with, is that the way that folks can make donations that are not trackable tends to go to a lot of these problematic organizations. And I think one of the main issues that we're seeing and understanding and the takeaway of this is that Islamophobia is not about a one-off hate crime. It's very easy to look at what happened to, say, the three young Muslim students in, in Chapel Hill and say, well, that's an exception to the rule. Everyone's not that hateful. And if we just educated people, things would be okay. Well, it's not a matter of educating people. Yes, that works for a certain extent. But when we talk about the levels of Islamophobia, right, you have like what happens on the grassroots and then you have the structural and the institutional mm -hmm. Islamophobia. And that's where this comes in. Talking about how corporations are funding networks to have all this money who then target, okay, who are the people who may not necessarily be exactly racist or Islamophobic but have these problematic feelings against Muslims, how do we get them to go completely to the right? And then you see this because then they're lobbying organizations, they go to local politicians, they try to get them to pass bills and legislations that are Islamophobic, that are anti-Muslim. And one of them were being these like these anti-Sharia law bills, right? Not too long ago, where politicians were saying, hey, we're passing these bills that are going to ban Sharia law from ever taking over and you can't use Sharia law to like rule, you know, in the courts. And this is ridiculous for a number of reasons. One, Sharia means law. So really, you're just saying law, law. It's kind of <laughs> like saying chai tea. Chai tea, exactly. Tea, right? We all use that example. Exactly. And uh, that, one, it doesn't function that way. And two, Sharia isn't this idea of we're going to cough, cut off your hand if, you're, if you steal. It's when I am marrying my husband, I'm doing it in the sense that, yes, I am legally registered as a married woman, but I'm doing it in the way of, of my religious beliefs and my customs, the same way as how kids get inheritance from their parents, the mm -hmm. same way how divorce works. It is a way of life for Muslims. So you can't just ban it, right? We wouldn't do this for other faith groups. So a lot of these lobbying organizations are trying to pass these really weirdly vague organizations that are not really meant to protect folks from foreign law, but are criminalizing the Muslim way of life. Mm -hmm. And so that's the impact of trying to understand something that's really up here, right, the structural and institutional Islamophobia, how the money trickles down to these local politicians, and then how it affects just regular families who are just trying to live their lives. And why would Muslims want to implement their laws or uh, impose them on others. Also, ignoring the fact that one of the main principles of Islam is that you follow the law of the land that exactly. you live in. So exactly. my, my, my Sharia is telling me to follow the Constitution. And it's just a matter of demonizing. You want to get these, these scary boogeyman words, right? And I think that's the goal. And Reda, can you repeat this for listeners who like may have missed it? What does Sharia say in terms of following the law of the land? Yeah, so the Sharia says that you as a Muslim are obliged and required to follow the land of the law. So my Sharia is telling me to follow the Constitution as an American Muslim citizen. Right. Moving on to politics, right. I was reading your tweets and I, I thoroughly enjoyed them. Um, and you seem to be very critical of centrism in America. Why are you so critical? 
I think the problem with um, centrism in media specifically, this idea of trying to placate both sides when it comes to certain issues is weak and, 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 and cowardly, in my opinion. There are certain things that are not up for debate. When we're talking about issues of xenophobia and race, when you're trying to play the both sides have valid sides, it does not make sense for me to put up a white supremacist and be like, tell me your side of the debate against a victim of a hate crime, a black person, mm-hmm. a Muslim person, who's being attacked because of what they look like or what they believe in. And I think this idea of this balanced view, right, doesn't make sense in, in media sense because people are, don't understand or we tend to forget at the end of the day that media is a power dynamic. Media is about giving people voices and other people they don't get as much voices. So when we look at it in terms of a power structure and a power dynamic, we'll understand what it means to uplift marginalized communities. But if we're going to say that white supremacists have just as so much of a valid voice and opinion as a victim of a hate crime, That's unjust and that's unfair. And I think that's where centrism fails. We've recently seen Jake Tapper equated Arabs and Palestinians to white supremacists, right? And it was, first of all, shocking and it was extremely, extremely disappointing. But I see that with so many mainstream journalists. They will use these terms and they will conflate one with the other, not knowing what the implications are. What did you think about that? I think this just highlights the need to have more journalists of color. Mm -hmm. I think it shows that we need an institutional change. And I think it continues to show when you have someone of a marginalized community working in your newsroom It's about making your coverage better. Mm -hmm. It's about helping your audience members understand things that you simply don't understand. Mm -hmm. And I think people don't understand. It's not a matter about a white person can't do a good job. Mm -hmm. It's about your education can only go so far. And so especially when we're talking about marginalized communities, and in my case, when it comes to the Muslim community, let's be real. The Muslim community has been traumatized by media. We've been vilified for so long that when a journalist reach out, oftentimes they say, you know what, let me not do this interview because they're going to twist my words. The framing is going to be problematic. Even if I say everything perfectly, it's just going to not work in my favor. Mm-hmm. And then and that's because that's been the truth in the past. But I have been able to come in and other journalists of color when you gain the trust of marginalized communities, communities who don't trust mainstream media because of how they frame things, it only makes your newsroom stronger. And I think people up top, managers, editors-in-chief, need to understand this. And I know and wholeheartedly believe in this field, that's why I'm in it, that there are ways to make it better if we listen to the right people. And also, it's important to have communication with uh, your community as well. I think Muslims don't do that as often. And I've said it time and again that we need to do that. But here's the thing. I've had this conversation with many other Muslim friends and even with my intern. Whose responsibility is it to educate non-Muslims? Is it non-Muslims' responsibility to go and seek the truth about Muslims? Or is it our responsibility, solely our responsibility, to go and educate them? Because sometimes I feel that this onus on us as Muslims, educating, trying to educate non-Muslims all the time, it just gets too much. 
Yeah, it's exhausting. And it's exhausting. And I applaud Muslims who do that. And I see that so frequently. There isn't a single mosque that I haven't visited or talked to who doesn't have a, like, open mosque day. There isn't a Muslim neighbor who celebrates Ramadan or Eid that doesn't go to their neighbor and gives them a plate of food or explains to them. And I think it's beautiful and I think it's amazing. And look, I think we should continue doing it. But I don't think the onus should be only on us. I think that's exhausting. I think it's triggering. And I think it's unfair. Mm -hmm. It's almost a a guilt by association, you know, that I have something bad to hide or something about my face, so I need to go out of my way to prove my humanity. No, I think the point of interfaith work is both sides coming together and having those conversations. It's difficult. And let's be real. It doesn't happen as often as it should for someone to come in and say, hey, I don't know anything about your community or your faith. I have some questions. And I think people need to do that and people need to do it in person. Again, we're talking about this earlier about the problems of of the internet. I did a story not too long ago about Google's algorithm and when it came to searching Islamic terms. And so I I did this test run with the word tokeya, right? And tokeya is a word that I had no idea what it was until I started to have Islamophobes attacking me as a journalist and saying, you're lying, you're just doing tokeya. And I was like, what is this? Like? <laughs> I went to an Islamic school as a kid. I don't know what this is, right? And so it's this concept that non-Muslims believe that Muslims can lie in the faith in order to achieve like a goal or an agenda, right? Um, and that's not it. It was a term that where we're Muslims Muslims were being persecuted, they would lie and say that they weren't Muslims to save their own lives. But whatever, for somehow, some reason, it's become this twisted thing. And so I, when you Googled it at the time, the first three links that popped up on Google were links from anti-Muslim websites mm-hmm. who completely distorted what Islam was, were completely made propaganda websites, were just vilifying Muslims in Islam based off of this term. So I'm thinking to myself, if I am just a regular person and I've come across this word and I'm going to go to the internet to educate myself, my first three links are problematic. And let's just think about me and you. If I Google anything, I barely go past the first page, let alone the first three links. And so these are all soft ways as to how things like algorithms and the internet just continue to demonize Islam. And this is why I highly encourage for people to have one-on-one interactions. Even a Pew Research study came out and said that more than half of Americans don't know a Muslim personally. They don't. They don't. Absolutely. But the ones that do have a positive view, a vehemently positive view on Islam and Muslims. Mm -hmm. So, And it's not a positive view in terms like they're going to convert to Islam. They just know that my neighbor is a good person and they're just a regular person. Like positive in the most basic, minimal, humanizing way. And this is why I encourage more of the face-to-face interactions than, say, going on Twitter or Googling things. So every time we go to Eid, Namaz, or Juma prayer, there's a khutbah, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'm not comfortable with how the khutbah is structured or what topics it's structured on. I feel, and maybe I've been to mosques that don't focus as much on community and on, like, you know, bringing communities together or peace building. There's a lot of conversations around what's going to happen after you die. Hmm. Right. Yeah. And when I take my kids, we like young girls, when they go with me, um, I don't want them to be scared. How do you think as Muslims we can change that and what needs to be done in khutbahs and at mosques where not just Muslims, 
non-Muslims can go and have conversations and listen to khutbas and come out more, you know, energized and happy and having a more positive image of Islam and Muslims. Yeah, I think our communities are still struggling to hold on to what they think is important, right? Their cultural identities, their religious identities, mm-hmm. and understanding what young first, second, third generation American Muslims need. I think when we look at our mosques, they're still pretty racially segregated. Yeah. So you'll have like the South Asian mosque will do something, the Arab mosque will do something, the Basque mosque are doing something. And people are not realizing that mosques are not being the spaces that young Muslims need them to be, right? If that, you know, you ask young Muslims now if they go to mosques as often as, say, maybe your immigrant parents or just immigrants in general, it's vastly different. And how we practice Islam is is vastly different. And the spiritual fulfillment that we need doesn't always come from there. The Muslim community, like any other community, is going to struggle with issues of racism, which, you know, Muslims, we still struggle with. Like we have anti-black racism, right? Issues of sexism and misogyny, issues of trying to understand different family structures. And so I think, unfortunately, the state of Islamophobia has become so bad that we as a community kind of have our backs against the wall, Mm -hmm. where we feel like we can't air our dirty laundry, right? Where we feel like we just need to figure out to target the issues of white supremacy mm-hmm. and just that. And I think that's that's minimal, and I don't think that's fair. I think there are ways that we can grow our communities where our mosques and our safe space are welcoming inclusive spaces for yeah. all Muslims, right? That we are having khutbahs and, and different halakas about things that give us that spiritual nourishment, that are motivating, that are relevant to our day-to-day lives. I think we still, unfortunately, have this immigrant mentality where— Folks maybe want to debate, you know, what happens after death or like the details of heaven and what happens in hell and who qualifies for what, right? (laughs) Which like if that's your cup of tea, fine. But I think when you're talking to the average American Muslim, it's not. It's it's how do I stay true to my faith and still navigate going to school and still being otherized and still dealing with racist and, and sexist attacks. And so I think our communities are making progress. I think when you look at the imams, the imams are getting younger, right? I think the structures of spaces, we're now finally giving attention to the women's spaces just as much as the men's spaces. Mosques back in our motherland, right? It was just predominantly the men that would go. And if you went to the women's spaces, they were were horrible, right? There was like a dungy little basement that barely had a water fountain that worked. And the men's section would be lavish with gold writings on the wall, right? It's it's so interesting (laughs) because in Pakistan, growing up in Pakistan, I never went to a mosque because this whole notion of women don't go to mosques somehow and when I came here and the first time I went to the mosque and I was in fact reluctant to go to the mosque and my husband was like no let's go you know it'll be fun and even now every time I go to the mosque I feel like I am like I am out of place or something like Mm. why am I here because Mm. whatever prayers I need to do I'll do it at home. home Right. And and again, that goes back to cultural differences. I'm sure uh, in Egypt, where your parents come from, I'm probably women do go to mosques, not to, as you described, not to these beautiful, fancy mosques, yeah. but they still go there. Right? right. And just understanding that, like, at the end of the day, if our parents have done something one way, like we're doing it differently. American Islam is so unique in its practice and in a way that I find to be just so beautiful, just a mesh of different cultures. Yeah. 
folks who are coming from countries that are not Pakistan, that are not Egypt, and that mosques need to learn that. So maybe the founding of a mosque came from immigrants from a certain country, but the predominant visitors now in the next 10, 15, 20 years are going to be people who've never been to those countries, yeah. right? You know, the mosque that my parents go to now, it could be predominantly Egyptian now, but in 15 years, you could have descendants of Egyptian immigrants who've never been to Egypt themselves. And so I think our mosques needs to catch, they need to catch up this space in London. It's called Rumi Cave, okay. where Muslims from all different cultures, walks of life come together. There's open mic, there is, you know, poetry, there is so much else that goes on. And I think we need to have more spaces like that, especially in New York. Maybe we do, and I'm not aware of it. Yeah, and I think those spaces are growing. I think especially when you have a place like New York, you have the Islamic Center out at NYU is a big hug for young Muslims. Mm-hmm. You have the Muslim Writers Collective. And and I think it's been amazing to see more Muslims explore different fields that are beyond STEM, right? So you have the cultural stereotype of Southeast Asians and Arabs. It's like your parents grew up, you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, <laughs> and you don't really have like much diversity other than those two. And so growing up when my parents realized that I was going into journalism, they were just kind of like, wait, like, are you going to do this on the side after becoming a doctor? And you're just like, actually, the doctor is not even in the plans. And so there's a little bit of that culture shock. And I think we're, we're starting to see more diversity in our communities. And we're starting to see more diversities in professions and hobbies. And, and I, I love that. And I think this is how we celebrate our community. And this is how, in a sense, we're going to solve and get rid of Islamophobia, right? Yeah. When we only tie Muslims, and, and this is, goes back to your point, a little bit of soft Islamophobia, even on the left and on the Democratic Party. Well, absolutely. When they bring up Muslims, we're still bringing them up in the context of national security and terrorism, right? I remember very distinctively during the primaries, um, Hillary Clinton, when she was running for president, the one time she brought up Muslims in the debate, she said, well, of course Muslims are Muslims. There are eyes and ears in the war against terrorism, right? She didn't say... So condescending. So condescending, right? And it also just devalues Muslims. She didn't talk about that they're doctors and lawyers and journalists and people are just trying to have a better life. Mm -hmm. Again, we were pawns for something else, for for a bigger policy. And I think we need to recognize the diversity of the community and people are going to soon not have the synonymous terrorism and wars in the Middle East equals Muslims. It said, no, Muslims also equal Ibtihaj Muhammad, you know, the first Olympian, mm. is going to equal Halima Aden, right? The first model is going to equal Rashida and Ilhan and, and a bunch of names of people doing things beyond politics, people accomplishing things from, from all different professions and careers. And if you talk about the Democratic Party, is there a candidate that stands out? So n- not going to say who stands out to me personally, okay. but from my line of work and, and from talking to different Muslim voters in particular, and, and I've been covering this beat a lot for a while now, covering the 2020 elections, I've seen that Muslims tend to be very excited to see Bernie. Yeah. Um, and they are very impressed with his track record and not because of the things that he says, but his consistency in his messaging. Absolutely, yeah. And that he is someone who has consistently stood up for someone like Ilhan Omar, right? When Muslims see the Dems who take her down, they say, well, if they can take down this one Muslim congresswoman, the first hijabi congresswoman, Mm -hmm. then 
what about me, a random lone Muslim, maybe in the suburbs of Chicago, right? Like, what is that person, how is that Dem going to react to me? Are they going to hear my concerns as a voter? And so I've seen a lot of praise for Bernie Sanders, who was the first presidential candidate mm. to visit a mosque this year. Um, he had visited mosques uh, out in Masjid Muhammad in, in D.C. when he um, was running in 2016. So I've seen a lot of praise for him. I've seen a lot of Muslims praise Elizabeth Warren. I was at a conference in Washington, D.C., not just about a month ago, where they held a presidential forum for 2020 Democratic candidates to come and to talk and to engage with Muslim voters. And Saria, no one said they were coming at first. And the organizers came to me and they were livid. They were just like, why don't they care about the Muslim votes? How come none of these candidates are coming? And so I did a a lot of calling to these candidates' offices, and we ended up getting some changes. We had Bill de Blasio came in person. Mm -hmm. He was the only presidential candidate that came. Bernie Sanders sent in a recorded video, and Elizabeth Warren did a a, a live video stream. Um, and, And so did another presidential candidate. And we also have ISNA, right, coming up, mm-hmm. the largest conference for Muslim Americans um, happening in Houston. And, and Bernie Sanders is going. Um, Julian Castro is going. And so we're seeing more Dems now paying attention. And Muslims are paying attention as to which candidate is coming out and caring for my vote and engaging me. And I think that's going to go a long way. But whether the way I see it, I think Muslims for the longest time have not presented themselves as a unified voting bloc, and they need to start doing that. Well, it's because we actually don't vote as a voting bloc. And we should. We should. Because here's what you're talking about, Bernie Sanders, right, Elizabeth Warren, all these candidates, like both, at least both these candidates have, Bernie Sanders more so than Elizabeth Warren, of course, has been extremely supportive of Muslim community and have spoken about Muslim community and, and sided with them. So it is our responsibility as Muslims to unite in how we vote because that's how we will make a difference. Because as you said in the very beginning, Muslims are a small minority in the U.S. Unless we have we are a unified voting bloc, our votes won't matter as much. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I'm all for diversity of votes, and I think Muslims should come out and they should vote in whatever way they want to vote. It's not so much of, the, of a voting bloc, but I think we need to just come out and vote. I think a lot of Muslims are not registered to vote. I think a lot of Muslims are not voting. I think they either think it conflicts with the faith, right? You had a lot of immigrant communities who say, you know, voting is not, you know, haram or whatever, or forbidden in Islam, which is not the case. And I think we're, we're battling that in our community. Mm-hmm. We also have Muslims who say, well, we're too small and no one's going to care for our vote. Or you have Muslims who say, well, what candidate is going to care for me and my issues anyway? It doesn't really matter. And then there and are that's ri- all wrong. And then there are extremely rich Muslims who would rather vote for a um, Republican racist bigot because it saves it. He may save them some taxes. Yeah, I mean, I think people will have their different opinions as to why they do and don't vote, and I'm and I think people should vote again in any way that they want. And what's fascinating about the Muslim community is that we haven't always voted Democrat. Uh, you know, mm. Muslims largely came out and voted for Bush, right, for his election, and and it's come out and said that he. Um, largely thanks to the Muslim community, you know, like had a, a good mm-hmm. chunk. Bernie Sanders, when he won Michigan, they said they attributed his win again to a huge chunk of the of the Muslim vote. And so whether you want to vote 
for either party, whatever your reasonings are, you know, that's fine. We can argue that till we're blue in the face. But mine is is the community members who feel like their votes won't matter. Hmm. And I think that's problematic. And I think we're still trying to engage folks. We're trying to convince folks. And, you know, I think, you know, my parents, they didn't think that their vote mattered. They only vote in the presidential elections and say not state and local elections. And so dragging out your cousins and your family members, <laughs> if you can, I highly encourage you doing so. Yeah. And I think people need to realize that, yes, we are a small community. Yes, maybe our voting impact is not that strong, but it is noticeable. And it matters. Yeah, and it matters. And with, uh, in the end, if you were to describe America in a word, a sentence, a phrase, how would you do that? Oh, man, that's a tough one. I think it's loaded. Um, I would say potential. Hmm. I th- and I, I think the reason why I say potential is because, yes, America has opportunities, but the way the structures and the systems are set up, it's it's prioritizing, right, a communities um, more than others, right? Marginalized hmm. communities are still struggling. I think the system isn't set up in a way that could benefit everyone as as equally. And so I say potential because, you know, I'm an American and I think we can get there. And I think it can continue to be something amazing. But I think we have a lot of work to do. I think we have a lot of issues we need to resolve. I think we have a lot of, we need to take a hard look at our past and see how it set back certain marginalized communities. And I think we need to look at our legislations and our policies and do a lot of revamping. But I think the potential, if Mm -hmm. we're willing to put in the hard work and have those really difficult conversations, is is something amazing to me. And so I think that potential is, is important. I think it's that potential as to why many of our families came here to to begin with but i think we need to put in the work thank you so much Ueda. this was wonderful thank you for a great and insightful conversation thank you for having me it was a pleasure thank you everyone for listening come back next week when we have another amazing story and in the meantime stay connected 